Bibles to Mark chapter 12, looking at verses 35 to 44 today. So it's still Tuesday, and Jesus' is Passion Week, the last week before the crucifixion. It's been Tuesday for like a month now, it seems. He's still in the temple, the place where the holiness of God is supposed to be most present on the face of the planet, the most sacred location on earth, a place of worship and prayer, a place where spiritual fruit of the world is supposed to be gathered. At least that was the intention, and instead, the temple is filled with rotten fruit. And this is most apparent when Jesus, after flipping the tables, says, you have made the temple a den of robbers. You see, Israel had tried and tried and tried and failed at meeting the demands of the law. The terms of the old covenant were consistently broken by Israel. They did not worship God in spirit and in truth. They rejected God. And Jesus stands in this temple, in the center of Old Testament, Old Covenant worship, and he gets ready to tear it all down and to replace it with himself. This old system is passing away. This old system is rotten to its core. And as John the Baptist says, the axe is already laid to the root. And Jesus is about to bring the axe. He is replacing this old system with himself. The old center of wor- the, the center of worship is Jesus Christ and not a building in a city. And the religious leaders hate Jesus for everything that he's doing, everything that he's saying, everything that he's representing. He is removing everything that would give them significance, that would bring them wealth and purpose. And so these various groups of the religious leaders, they take their turns at trying to condemn Jesus in the eyes of the people or in the eyes of the Roman, trying trying to get him to incriminate himself before Rome. And each time, every time they try to take their turn, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, they fail. They can't get him to say what they want him to say in the way that they want him to say it. Jesus exercises his authority and his wisdom so profoundly So supernaturally that these most educated, most religious people on the face of the planet are absolutely silenced. There is no challengers left. Verse 34, where we ended last week, says, No one dared to ask him any more questions. And Jesus doesn't stop there, though. Answering questions, silencing opposition is not enough to induce faith in people. It's not enough to reveal his true identity. So he has conquered the battleground, the battlefield, and now he's about to take the battlefield and not leave it abandoned. And so that's what today is. He is taking the field that he has just conquered. And so while we, while we look at this passage, you're going to see two things. Jesus is, is angry towards these religious leaders. His anger has reached a climax. 
And the second thing that you'll see is that following Jesus means that you lay down everything that you are. All right, let's read it. Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 44. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting their money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they, are contribu- they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we come across a passage and perhaps we've read it a, a dozen times, a hundred times, and its meaning can become routine to us. And I pray that that would not be the case today with these words. May you penetrate our hearts with what you have here. May you open our eyes to what you have done in history, that we might stand in awe before a God who is holy and who deserves our entire lives. Use my words for this unimaginably significant passage and commit ourselves to you and trust in you to do what we cannot. In Christ's name, amen. So as Jesus is in the temple teaching, the temple, again, is absolutely packed with people. They're all there for the Passover um, festival that's about to begin. A huge crowd that, that is listening to him. Verse 37 says it's a great throng of people. And they're hearing him gladly. So the word on the street is that Jesus, this guy from Nazareth, is the long-awaited Messiah. He's doing these miracles. He's speaking with authority, stunning the religious leaders to silence. And so they're eating up everything that he has to say, recognizing in Jesus this authority and wisdom that's beyond anything they've ever seen before. So they're there, they're listening, they're seeing him as... It, it, some of them are saying, this is the Messiah. Others are saying, is this the Messiah? Hmm. And so he's there taking this opportunity where the people are listening to him to reveal himself, to reveal his identity. He's casting gospel seeds into this crowd, seeing if there's any fertile soil. And so look again at what he's teaching them starting in halfway through verse 35. How can the scribe say that the Christ is the son of David? 
David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? So to understand Jesus' question that he's asking of the crowds and of the scribes, we need to understand a little bit more about what the scribes' understanding is of the son of David. So in 2 Samuel 7, you don't need to turn there, but that, just about that whole chapter is God making covenant with David, the Davidic covenant, where God promises David that from his lineage will arise a king, and that king will reign on David's throne forever. Or there will be kings that reign on David's throne forever. So David is assured that from his lineage there will be one that comes that will reign forever. This king that will come, not just a ruler, but he's a priest. He's a kingly priest. And he will eternally reign. This is where the Messiah is is maybe more pronounced, more elaborated on in the Old Testament. This son of David. He is the son of David. Um, And so we see this really uh, maybe most profoundly stated or most obviously stated in Psalm 132, verses 11 and 12. I'll read it for you. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your son keeps, sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on my throne. So forever and ever there shall be one sitting on the throne of David. But if you know anything about Israel's history, you know that Israel was unable to meet the demands of the covenant, and so Israel's, or the, the, the lineage of Davidic kings is snuffed out when the exile happens even before that, actually. So there's this belief that one is coming. God will appoint one, a Messiah, who will reestablish David's throne. He will, he will bring that glory back to Israel. He will be from the line of David, and he will be the Messiah, this God-appointed ruler of Israel. And, and so the scribes are absolutely correct in saying that the Messiah is the son of David. That's not wrong. He is the son of David. But what is wrong is when the scribes stop there. And they say that he is just the son of David. They don't say anything about his divinity. The scribes talk about the Messiah in terms of him being a righteous man, in terms of him, like I said, establishing David's throne, restoring the glory of Israel. But this is just a partial understanding of Scripture. A half-truth. How can the scribes say that? Do they not know the Word? Do they not know the Scriptures? They are supposed to know the Scriptures better than anybody else, and yet they're only teaching this half-truth. How can the scribes say that? And what Jesus is doing now is He's calling into question His very identity. He's calling his, question, his identity into question before the religious leaders, the scribes, and the crowds that are there listening. And he's asking all of them the same essential question that he asked the disciples on the road to Caesarea Philippi. Who do you say that I am? 
And this time, Jesus doesn't wait for them to answer. He does everything except give them the answer. And so let's turn to Psalm 110, where, he's, where he quotes. I'd like all of you to turn to Psalm 110. Or scroll to it. This is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. This passage has huge significance to who Jesus is and to what the New Testament communicates, and indeed to what, the, to what this Old Testament passage and the whole of the New Testament has to say about our lives. So Psalm 110, I'm going to read the entire chapter, and it's not a long one. It's a Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. He's saying this to the king. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Okay, so a very surface reading of this. You know this is not a passage about David, the king of Israel. This is something beyond David. It's about the Messiah, this future king that would come from David's line. This is clearly a messianic passage, and all of the people of the day understood this passage to be a messianic passage about the coming Savior, the future king. And so what we have here is David seems to be overhearing and recording this conversation going on among the divines in the Godhead. David is listening to this and writing it down. And so we say the Lord, or we see the Lord says to my Lord. Now look in your Bibles. You should immediately see see that these two lords are different. One Lord is all capitalized letters; the other one is not. And so what we actually have here are two different names in the original Hebrew. The first Lord that is all capitalized is Yahweh. Yahweh says to my Lord. Now, many believe Yahweh is God the Father. That's wrong. Yahweh is the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The fullness of God, the Trinitarian God, the one God is Yahweh. And Yahweh is speaking, and David is writing it down. And David writes, Yahweh says to my Lord. And the second Lord is the word Adonai. Adonai is the Hebrew word for Lord or Master that can be attributed to earthly lords or masters or even kings. But very often in the Old Testament, it's attributed to the God of Israel, the King of Israel, God himself. And so, when Psalm 110 is saying, it is saying that Yahweh is bestowing a messianic role to Adonai. Yahweh is establishing Adonai as a king and a priest 
over the whole world. Over, he is the Savior of the world. That is who Adonai is. That's what he's being given. And so when David writes, My Lord, there is no master over David. He is the king of Israel. And so the only one over David is God, the king, Adonai. The only Lord over David is the divine Lord. And so how can the Messiah merely be a man from David's lineage, merely be a person, a great person? Who do you think this Messiah is? So they thought Jesus was Messiah. They were getting excited that maybe Jesus is the Messiah. But again, their perceptions are limited. They believe that he's just the son of David, just a man, just somebody who's going to conquer the Romans and just somebody who's going to restore Israel's glory. And Jesus is showing himself to not just be the son of David. Jesus is the son of David and the son of God. He is divine. He existed in time eternal before David. He has come from heaven. There are people who say that Jesus never claimed to be God. These people do not understand the Scripture. They're just like the ones that say Jesus was just the son of David. Remember the Sanhedrin's initial question that they posed antagonistically towards Jesus, that set off this whole series of questions and then Jesus' powerful answers. The question was, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you authority to do them? So Jesus silenced them in their questioning, and right here he gives them the definitive answer that cannot be question that cannot be muddled. He is the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of God, and his authority comes from God. He, in fact, is God, and he is standing in the temple among the priesthood and the scribes who will not worship him, who will not recognize him as God. And they reject him, and they scorn him. And then Jesus throws back the curtain on his indignation and anger towards these religious leaders. Look at verses 38 and 39. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. These scribes. They wore their long prayer shawls, long robes that distinguished them as being imminent and wealthy, set them apart immediately just by looking at them. There were seats at the front of the synagogues that would face the congregation that were given to the, the, the greatest teachers, the, the people of highest standing, and that's where they would sit. They're called the first seats. Every person along in the streets and in the marketplace, was expected to rise when these religious leaders came walking through. And, you know, there are plenty of places in the Old and New Testaments that say that we should honor our leaders, and that's true, and that's good. But when this honor becomes the motivation of our leaders, that's wickedness. If the only reason I stood up here was so that I could receive honor and significance from you, that is wickedness. You should run me out of here. 
All that these religious leaders are doing is for the affections of man, for the honor of people. They are to be living. These are the religious leaders of the old covenant. They should be living for the glory of God, and they live for the glory of themselves, for the affections of man. They suck up all glory and honor into this black hole of self from which no light can escape. They are stealing the glory and honor of God. They're to be treasuring God, and instead they're treasuring themselves. And they don't just steal from God. They steal from their neighbor. Look at verse 40. They devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. So every priest, every scribe would receive benefits from all that was given, into the, given to the temple. The temple was something like the central bank of Israel. So people were pouring money into the temple, and it was good, it's what God commanded, but these scribes and religious leaders we're benefiting from it. We're taking directly from it. They would coax the rich and the poor to give to the temple, and then they would take their cut lavishly. They would even convince people to sell their houses, sell their property, and give it to God. They would devour widows' houses because they would say things like, if you do this, you'll be blessed you'll receive a blessing. They were supposed to love God and love people. That's what we just read last week. The greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. They were supposed to love God with their whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. They were supposed to love their neighbor as themselves. And all they can do is love themselves. There was this incident in Rome that when the Romans read these words out of Mark, it would have immediately triggered the memory of this incident. So there was this Jewish scribe, he was a bit of a rogue, in Rome. He was living in Rome, and he had somehow befriended this Roman woman of high standing named Fulvia, and he convinced her to donate huge amounts of money to the temple in Jerusalem, and she did so. She did so at great cost to herself. And then the news broke in Rome that he embezzled every single penny of it. And this was abhorrent all the way from Caesar Tiberius down to the street slate. It scandalized all of Rome. So when they read these words, they immediately were thinking of what happened to Fulvia. Again, I should probably mention that the Romans were the audience for the book of Mark. Today, in our day, there are preachers, that they, and they call themselves Christians, and they sell blessings for money. Be wary of anyone that tells you that if you give them money, you will receive some blessing. That if you buy this cloth, you will receive some blessing. If you buy this water, you will receive some blessing. If you give money into their ministry, you will be blessed. As if your blessings can purchase your gift today. Or if your money can, sorry. 
And the people that are most likely to give to these preachers are the people that are hurting, the people that need a blessing, that need a break, and they're taking, these preachers are taking advantage of the poor widows. And then all you have to do is look at how these preachers live. They have massive estates. They have exotic cars. They have their own private jets for which they travel the world. There's one preacher right now who is asking his people to buy him his fourth private jet. Do you know how he justifies this ask? He says if Jesus were alive today, he wouldn't ride a donkey. I cannot help but feel outraged for this. The words are not appropriate. Preachers like this do not know Jesus. They stand in their elaborate churches and in their TV sets, just like the scribes stood in their temple. Rotten fruit. Beware of them. Theirs is the greater condemnation. These religious leaders that lived the they lived and those today live for, for money, for the praises of, of people. And then they go from here and they bloody their hands with their Savior. There's no mercy for them at all. All that they were and all that they found significance in was now going to be torn down to the ground. And so what Mark spends three verses on, Matthew spends almost a whole chapter on. Matthew 23. Jesus condemns the religious leaders with seven woes. And this is full of anger and indignation towards these religious leaders. A whole chapter devoted to this. I'm going to give you a sampling from Matthew 23. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, Paul, so that, you may have, so that you may come on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barachai, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." All these things will come upon this generation. That means the generation hearing the words of Christ will be the ones on which it comes upon. Not a generation 2,000 years in the future or 10,000 years in the future. This generation. All the judgment of Israel's hypocritical, self-serving wickedness will befall them. In Jewish tradition, a generation is about 40 years 40 years, almost exactly 40 years after Jesus speaks these words, the temple falls in 70 AD. The Jews face a tribulation that is almost unimaginable for us today. The final judgment befalling them when the temple falls when it falls by the hands of the Romans. And the entire next chapter of Mark, chapter 13, is devoted to this calamity that's about to come to them, that will happen to this generation. 
And so this is, a, this is totally a parenthesis. When we get to chapter 13 next week, what we are doing is talking about the end times. And I'm going to present this to you. I'm going to teach it in a way that maybe a lot of you haven't heard before. But these are the end times when the temple falls and everything that leads up to it and every single thing that we read just about in chapter 13 is completely fulfilled stunningly accurately. And I am really excited to show you how that all plays out. So it'll be like a three-week mini-series within the book of Mark that'll take us through chapter 13. And we're going to look at the signs of the close of the age. Close of the age is another way to say the end times. We're going to look at the abomination of desolations, and we're going to look at the coming of the Son of Man and how each one of these things has happened. Now, when I, this is a parenthesis inside a parenthesis, so I guess this is brackets. When I teach through this, you do not have to agree with me. But I think I'm right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so that's close, close, parentheses. Okay, so after that, um, after we read about Jesus' anger and he says expressions of this towards the scribes, Jesus draws us a sharp contrast uh, when we get to 41 and 42 in our, chap- in our passage. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. The offering box that people are putting money into has a large bronze funnel on top of it. I've got a picture here for you. This is a rendering of what it might have looked like. There's a large bronze funnel on top of the offering box. You'd drop your coins in there, and they would make a lot of noise as they rattled down the funnel into the offering box. So if you're wealthy and you're dropping in a lot of money, it's going to make a lot of noise, and everybody will be like, oh, listen to that. That guy loves the Lord. A couple coins... It's not going to make much money, especially when we're talking about these copper coins, light and insignificant. That's what she drops in, though. There's hardly a sound. Everybody who's around, they see her going to it and dropping something, maybe hearing a little tinkle as it goes down. And they all know that she didn't, she hardly put anything in. Financially speaking, this widow's gift is not even worth comparing to the large amounts of money that people have been dropping into this offering box. But We know that this is not how the divine exchange rate works. This is not the economy of grace. So we read on verses 43 and 44. He called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had and all that she had to live on. Just a brief point here. This shows us something that that Jesus has sovereign knowledge, doesn't he? He knows this is all that she has. He is truly God. Supernatural knowledge here. He is who he says he is. The other thing, and more importantly, is that 
the earthly wealth of this poor widow, everything that's said about it is, is in terms of less than. She's poor. She gives less than. She's less in the world, insignificant, meaningless. But the faith of this poor widow is incomparably more rich than the wealthiest on earth and the most religious of leaders. As James Edwards writes, In the temple, others gave what they could spare, but the poor widow spared nothing. Others gave from the surplus, but she gave from her need all she had to live on. All she had to live on. And with this last sentence, Jesus closes his public ministry. No longer is he speaking to the crowds. He closes the book to the public. But if you remember when he opened that, when he began his ministry, he found a couple fishermen and some others and said, leave everything that you have and come, follow me. And that first call is perfectly exemplified in what this woman does and gives all that she has to live on with two coins, not even worth a penny. Two chapters from now, in chapter 14, you're going to see a woman take a flask full of perfume and break it and pour it out on Jesus' head. And this flask is, compared to, to this widow, light years more expensive. It's worth about a year's salary, maybe like $40,000 in our day. A bottle of perfume, that's $40,000, and she breaks it and puts it on Jesus' head. And the disciples are incensed. They say, this perfume could have been sold. We could have, been, we could have given the money to the poor. And Jesus says this, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in her memory. It is not about how much we give to Jesus. It's not about the value of the gift, is it? It's about the cost to the giver. He's not concerned with how much you give him. Does it cost you something? No matter how small or insignificant the gift, no matter how large, whether we give money or time or talent, if it is truly given to God, to Christ, it is not insignificant. In fact, it explodes with significance, eternal significance, where the eyes of the Almighty God look on your gift and he smiles. Immense eternal significance in the economy of God if what we give is truly given and if it costs us something. You see, there's more to this Greek phrase, all that she had to live on. We could very easily and accurately paraphrase it like this. She laid down her whole life. And that's true faith, 
right? That's what we've been talking about for months. That we would die to ourselves and daily take up our cross and follow him. And she lays down her whole life, leaving everything, taking up our cross and following him. Faith does not just give what we can afford, not what you're okay with if you leave it behind. Faith means that you leave everything at the feet of Jesus, and it's like saying to Christ, I do not trust in the things of this world or the things that I can produce. I trust wholly in you. Take all that I have. I trust you. And so you lay down everything of this world at the feet of Jesus. We live in a culture that makes this really hard. America the beautiful. And it is. But that beauty comes with a curse. The curse of stuff, of comfort, of ease, of security, of wealth. So are there things that you feel like you cannot live without? Could you give up the way that you relax at the end of the day? Could you give up the relationships that make this place feel like home? Could you give up the bank accounts that provide you with a sense of security and comfort? Could you give up the privacy and routine of your home to let a stranger in? Could you give up the ambitions that you have for your life? Could you give up the job that brings you significance and financial security? If you can't, if you can't imagine your life without any of these things, you're drinking poison. To give these things up would be a great cost. It would be really hard. It would feel like dying. That's the point. You cannot trust in these things. You cannot hold them. They will not bring you life. So die to the things that will kill you so that you can live to the one that will save you. To hold on to them will come at a far greater cost than letting go of them now. Lay them all at the feet of Jesus, prepared to walk away from them. And I'm not telling you today to, to like liquefy all of your assets and give it away and to leave everybody that you love and to be a hermit living in asceticism. I'm not telling you that, but I'm telling you, be ready. God could say to you, Uganda's your next home. He could say to you, you're going to leave everybody that you love to go live somewhere else. He could say to you, take that bank account and give it to somebody who really needs it. He could. Trust that Jesus will bring you more wealth and more joy, and more satisfaction, and more significance than anything on earth could possibly produce. David said, 
I will not give to God that which costs me nothing. So is there a cost when we give? Does it feel like dying? It is really easy to give out of the excess, to go through your closet and pick out what you didn't wear that year and then give it to goodwill and feel like you've done something good. Yeah, I mean, there's an element of good in that. That's, that's not this. We lay our whole self down. We give out of our need, not out of our, our abundance. Because Christ deserves everything we are. Because our treasure is in heaven. Because we treasure him more than we treasure the things on earth. Because, well, I was about to get ahead of myself. The religious leaders, they heard what Jesus was saying. They understood it to some degree. And they saw this as a threat. They saw that Jesus was trying to take away from them everything that brought them wealth and significance and purpose and everything else. They saw that he was doing that and they hated it. They saw that he was taking the people away from them from which they derived all of their glory and they hated that. So they took Jesus to Golgotha, a place where Jesus laid down his whole life as a gift to the Father. And as a gift to us. And as we read in Psalm 110, in that moment, Yahweh exalts Adonai. And the Messiah is fully revealed. The priestly king, the savior of the world, the hope of the nations. That in his death, in the giving of his whole life, all people could know joy in God. So let us live like Christ, ready to lay down our whole lives, to empty anything from ourselves and from our life, that we could give it to God as a gift, that we could give it to those around us as a gift to God, and not hold so tightly onto what makes us comfortable and secure and significant. In the end, they will burn like hay. Would you join me in prayer? Father, open our eyes to the things that are eternal. And I pray that even in me, in all of us, certainly in me, help me to tremble when I get too comfortable with the things of this earth, when I become too dependent on the things of this earth. Help me to tremble. Show us how to live self-sacrificially, to die to ourselves, and to treasure you above all things. You, the source of our life. Work in us, because we're so prone to wander. We pray these things in Jesus' name.